This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Greetings, everybody. Can you dig it? Hello, everyone. Hello. It is, I am coming to you live on a Friday morning, believe it or not. I am actually, so a couple of weeks ago, I think I might have done a podcast during work. Uh, I might not have, but I, I might have. So um, now I actually, it is July 2nd today. Yes, it's July 2nd today. So the 4th of July, aka, it's my favorite day of the year. The best day of the year is on Sunday. I am super excited. And I always try to, um, take a lot of myself in stock for that weekend because I tend to work myself to death and you know I want to be able to especially now that I'm transitioning into this more stable period of my life where I can take some time off I don't have to be on edge all the time everything so I decided to take today off even though a lot of people have already taken the day off might some people might have it off for a long weekend if you work in a place that has good benefits but so it's around eight o'clock in the morning just got done with the workout about to go out and you know do some running around in a couple minutes but Wanted to get this in because it's a longer podcast, so it's going to be probably a longer, a longer post or a longer, longer post for a longer podcast, whichever the fuck the order goes in. And um, wanted to talk about something that I find interesting. And although I assume, like, if I were to talk about it on here, I would probably think it interesting regardless. But anyways, so I wrote this post back last uh, September, so a good while ago, probably what is that, eight months, eight months, nine months ago. And wanted to revisit it today because it's, um, I remember writing it and feeling really good about writing it afterwards. So, I mean, I usually write my posts based on a feeling I had primarily. And then I try to go around and see if I can make an argument out of it. If I can, then I write a post on it. If I can't, then I usually don't write a post about it. So, um, the topic this week is self-esteem, kind of what it means, how it integrates into everything, how we can do it into our lives, everything, and do it into our lives. What the fuck kind of a phrase is that? But anyway, just kind of wanting to expand on that more and really just kind of getting right into it. So I won't take up too much of your long weekend, Oh, even though this is coming out on our Independence Day, again, the greatest day of the year. I will um, just get right into it. So let's go. Another Bill Burr-style rant against the modern culture. I rarely talk about my job. But although I have done it a lot recently, which is kind of abstract, remember this is back in September. So anyways, I rarely talk about my job, but I'm going to do so in relatively vague terms for just a little bit to provide context to the situation. I work in sales for a pretty good sized technology company and they show me how small your dick really is, shouts a guy from the non-existent audience. So thank you. <laughs> I like the job and I think I'm decent at it. It pays well and it keeps me busy and engaged during the day. Much better for me than any job I could have had if I followed my college major of finance. And by the way, I'm still getting over some stuffiness and a cold, so if I sound like I'm 
stuffed up to the brim. I probably am, so I apologize. It's hard to describe sales to people. I truly don't know what to say. But if I had to boil it down to something, I would probably say that sales is a lot like life. So another second non-existent audience member boos me from now on. You get out of it what you put into it. I tend to put a lot of work into most things that I care about, so that might be why, part of why I find it so rewarding. But another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that it's hard. My job is 99.9% .9 rejection from people. I've had a couple people basically tell me to go fuck myself. One guy offered to let me cut his grass for him. My manager wasn't on the phone with me at the time. I would have told the guy I would, have after, I would after he sucked his dick first. But that's neither here nor there. You can rip off 100 calls in a day and still get no one on the phone. You can make all the lists you want and still come up with a bunch of bullshit dead leads. You can fire out 400 templated emails only to get one lukewarm response. Additionally, being home provides an additional challenge. Normally, when you say when you hit these hello darkness my old friends moments, you're usually on the sales floor with a bunch of people doing exactly what you're doing to try to laugh it off. Not in case during the times of the beer virus. You're stuck in your bedroom, closet, in my case specifically then. Now I'm in a much vast, more vast space, I should say with no one to rescue from drowning in your own self-pity and victimhood. It can get quite depressing. So, what did I do to lift myself after these hole, out of these holes? Well, during my workday, see Digital Minimalism for why this is, my post on this, I might do a podcast on it later. I don't have anything regarding my optional technologies with me. The closest things that come to it are LinkedIn and YouTube. But, like I said, I like to keep myself busy with actual work during the day. So when I get into a rut or need to make time for some mindlessness, I plug a funny YouTube video in of a comedian or a movie scene to take my mind out to pasture. Additionally, if you've been a consistent reader or listener, you know I like to read a lot. Well, I don't read during work, at least usually. I read sometimes read for work. Before I officially started in this position back last June, so about a year ago, my, a little over a year ago as a matter of fact, my recruiter had me and the rest of the students she recruited at my university on a Zoom call where we discussed the transition to the job. One thing she left us with was a list of recommended books to read in order to best fully adapt to a sales position. Being a bookworm and being just a little bit of a teacher's pet, I bought them all. <clears throat> and I've only read one so far, The Psychology of Selling by Brian Tracy. I was skeptical. He was a, quote, sales guru, according to people. Never a good sign. But I read the book. I was completely ignorant to the field I was going into. Like I said, this wasn't my major in college and had no intention of getting into it until I got into it. So, but the guy was revered by nearly everyone in it, so what could hurt if I read it, right? The book, that's what. It was putrid for the most part. It had its nuggets, like most books do, but it still overall was incredibly meh. It wasn't necessarily the content, that was, that was fine, really. But what was most unnerving was the emotion behind the content, one that gets propagated so far and wide that it makes sales into a running joke for the longest time. One of the reasons why I was so hesitant to get into it in the first place. Movies like Glengarry, Glen Ross, Wall Street, and The Wolf of Wall Street have fetishized sales so much that they make you want to either A, beat off your dick and or vagina until your vagina falls off, or B, want to throw it into a trash can with a bottle of lighter fluid and blowtorch to send it back to the nether region. Neither are correct, having worked in the field for about a year now. We must not succumb to either absolute. But that didn't stop Brian Tracy from selling millions of copies of books off of option A, the beating your dick or vagina off one. Brian Tracy fucked the shit out of the aforementioned movie side of sales. He gassed it up to the max. He didn't hold back whatsoever. He pulled out every stop to ensure that all the clickbait and hype beast wannabes took every word that he said for Bond, and that no one could tarnish anything that he said. Those people don't, quote, want it enough. They don't have, quote, the drive. 
He literally told people in the book that I read to stand in front of the mirror and shout, I'm the best 10 times a day, 10 times each. I almost threw up. That's 100 times, by the way, if you can do math. But this style is nothing new. Jen Sincero, my least favorite person in the entire world of writing, does this constantly. She constantly writes about manifesting, hint, wishing, all of her dreams into a reality in a way that makes Napoleon Hill roll over in his grave. She tells people that no matter what happens, to love yourself, to treat yourself if you were special and unique at all times. These both sound good and they make people feel good about themselves, but all of them are lies. You see, people like Brian Tracy and Jen Sincero don't really believe in what they say. They don't. If they truly did, why write about it? Why talk about their own personal struggles? Why put themselves out there at all? To make them more relatable, they might say. To make people aspire to become like them. That seems reasonable. But it's not. If Brian and Tracy and Jen, if Brian, Tracy, and Jen and Sarah were truly happy with themselves, they would stay as they were. If they truly thought that telling yourself that you love yourself was the answer, they wouldn't write books on how to love yourself. If they truly thought that simply saying words into a mirror to yourself was the answer to your problems, they wouldn't sell seminars on how to say words into a mirror. They wouldn't strive towards anything. None of the majority of the self-help industry would. They don't sell self-help. They sell lies. Self-lies in this case. Sorry to shit in your cornflakes. But what is it that makes this such a devastating realization? What is it that makes this even more insidious than it is? In my opinion, it's an appeal to one specific thing. One thing that gets overused an incredible amount in our culture. One that lost all of its value and is thrown around more than a backyard football. Self-esteem. Self-esteem is something that everyone feels a need to have these days. It's been preached by nearly every notable person from Will Smith to Prince William. Stemming from a wave of psychology in the mid-20th century, the feelings of internal happiness and constant admiration for oneself spread like wildfire. It made a lot of people feel good. It sold a lot of things, from movies to record players to sex dolls. No wonder people, why salespeople love the word so much. But here's the thing about this view of self-esteem. It's incredibly flawed, and it's wrong. We want to have self-esteem ourselves, but we delude ourselves in the process by taking the word to excess. We create avoidance and delusion rather than true self-improvement. To prove this point, the dictionary lists two definitions for the word. The first states, quote, a confidence and satisfaction in oneself, self-respect. This is the one that most people associate with the word. It gets a positive connotation. It still isn't nearly as charged with the industry as what is in the industry, but it does the job. However, the second definition is only one word, and the one word says all you need to know. Quote, self-conceit. Ouch. And the definition of self-conceit is, quote, an exaggerated opinion of one's own qualities or abilities. Vanity. Double ouch. This is exactly what self-esteem does when taken to excess. It doesn't promote confidence and satisfaction. It promotes ego and narcissism, something that Brian Tracy and Jen Sincero have in spades. They don't want you to love yourself. They only want you to not love yourself just enough so that you come and buy their new book and go see them on tour and buy their shit. Stings, doesn't it? Self-esteem is bullshit. Well, at least the modern version of it is. But it turns out that a healthy self-esteem is really important. In my opinion, it just needs to be redefined and tweaked. To do that redefining and tweaking, we need to look at a progression of how we can undergo this transformation. To transform this concept to suit its true purpose, we need to see why self-esteem is bullshit, the gray area between self-esteem, and what we should look at to elevate beyond self-esteem in order to create true improvement. Oh, and if you see one of the aforementioned two authors' books lying around anywhere, follow the option Bs and throw them into a trash can with a bottle of lighter fluid and a blowtorch and send them to the nether region as well. 
you'll be doing us all a favor. Trust me. Part one, self-esteem is bullshit. Okay, now for the bad news. The self-esteem you've mostly heard about is probably bullshit. The modern version is faked up and propped up on fakeness. It's about feeling good all the time, and we know this is not possible. We know this because of our theory on mindless positivity. When we treat everything as a good thing just to make ourselves feel good, we do a few awful things. We demean our good experiences by saying that everything is good. If everything is good, then nothing is good. Nothing stands above the rest is better than the other alternatives. There are winners and losers in life. It shuns our bad experiences. We need bad experiences. They provide perspective and meaning to our lives, especially those of our good experiences. Without the low points and the bad stuff, we cannot appreciate the high points and the good stuff. We must perceive things as how they are, or else we risk succumbing to a life filled with even-keeled nothing, which is not good. Mindless positivity deludes our self-esteem. If we are positive all the time, are we truly confident? If we are positive all the time, what's the point in being satisfied? There are paradoxes that we must think about while navigating this dilemma. If we ignore them and cast them to the wayside, we risk forgetting about them and creating a universe inside of our heads that is both fake and illusory. We don't want to live in fairy fantasy land. It's not as good as it sounds. We live in reality on this podcast, at least in this confines of the web domain. <clears throat> We must take the bad stuff as bad and the good stuff as good. There must be a distinction. This is a binary equation, 2 plus 2 equals 4. There are only 1s and zeros in this code. You must be very wary whenever that divide becomes blurred, because then anything can happen. We can start to confuse things. We can start to become narcissistic and selfish, but think we are doing good in the process. And this is both detrimental to ourselves and our surroundings. But the ourselves part is the most important piece, as we cannot affect our surroundings without first affecting ourselves. The most obvious way that this inflated view of self-esteem does this is by taking a sledgehammer to our self-awareness. Ever since I've done a deep dive into self-awareness, I've realized its immense importance to the development of the individual. I first heard the term from sports commentator Colin Cowherd years ago, believe it or not, and it's stuck with me ever since. He preaches about constantly and talks about Tom Brady and NFL quarterbacks. But why? My answer would be that sports is just about the most open example of self-awareness that we can reference. Why? Because if you aren't self-aware, people will crush you. You have to improve. You have to create new opportunities for yourself. If you become complacent, if you adopt the quote, everything is fine and I'm great version of self-esteem, you die. You get cast aside for the next shiny object in the eyes of the, co of the consumers. You lose advertising revenue from sponsorships. No one wants to resign you. This is why Jamarcus Russell flamed out after being picked first overall by the Oakland Raiders in the 2007 NFL Draft. It's why Anthony Bennett was out of the NBA shortly after be being taken first overall by my Cleveland Cavaliers. It's why people like Josh Norman and Albert Hainsworth and Blake Griffin flame out after they land big contracts. They lose their urgency. They lose their self-awareness. Because the people who are self-aware are the people that are coming for are the people that are coming for them. The people that don't have the tens of millions of dollars and social media followers and the prestige just yet. But they want it. Oh, they want it. And they will compete their asses off to get it. It's why the average span of NBA and NFL players, the two most popular sports in America, by the way, is less than five years. It's hard to stay on top when you're the best in the world at what you do. There's not much surface area at the top of a mountain that you can't maneuver. But it can be improved with self-awareness. Self-awareness is knowing all of yourself, not just the parts you want to see. 
That's what makes it so different from self-esteem. Self-esteem only focuses on the good. It only focuses on how wonderful you are. It focuses nothing on how you can improve yourself, about how you blow dick at the majority of things that you do, how inadequate you are in the grand scheme of this big blue dot that we call Earth. Self-esteem, or at least our modern interpretation of it, turns a cold shoulder to the in inconvenient bad within ourselves that creeps around every corner. It callously ignores our union shadow, the inevitable dark side that lurks beneath the surface of each one of us. And, as we've talked about before, ignoring the bad of you does not make you a good person. It simply makes you naive, oblivious to the horrors that you could commit should you fall off the path of being a good person. And the worst part? You'd probably still think that you were doing the right thing. You have to still love yourself, right? By deliberately ignoring literally half of our self-awareness, the modern interpretation of our self-esteem corrodes and hollows out the insides of our psyche like a cantaloupe. It stuffs it with fluff and nonsense in order to make us feel like things are okay, when in fact they may not be. Our ruling class does this all the time. They create things like diversity, equity, and inclusion divisions within companies and tout numbers like GDP growth to make us feel good, to put a band-aid over the real problems that are plaguing our society. But they know. They know that these are not the real issues. The other issues are much more complex and painful to deal with. They and we would probably rather not go there. But that is where the magic happens. What wondrous things would happen to us in our world if we were only to take a peek at what was really going on? When we refuse to look away from the man behind the curtain, if we choose to look at what is complex and painful, we might, just might, be able to fix it. But it's too bad that our modern version for self-esteem doesn't allow for that. In our imprisonment of modern self-esteem, everything is fine, like the meme of the dog sitting in the burning room. It's not lit, folks. Travis Scott voice. When everything is, quote, fine, there is no reason to see where you could potentially have things wrong. If you love yourself enough, everything will be okay, right? Wrong. Self-esteem, in the modern form, doesn't contribute to growth. It deters growth. It acts as a break wall against a powerful wave of personal momentum. It reflects and sends it back with to equal force that's as its original impact. It's not that you aren't flawed. It's that you refuse, you refuse to see that you're flawed is the problem. When you refuse to look at yourself honestly, completely exposed and naked, you'll leave yourself open to the same despair and misery that you were looking for self-esteem to solve in the first place. In the words of Frank Costello, they call that a paradox. You go looking for something to make yourself feel better, self-esteem, but that only makes you feel worse in the end. Why? Well, because the problem is not fixed. You didn't do anything. You only covered it up. You pulled a wannabe Richard Nixon and pulled the wool over your own eyes and prayed that nothing would seep through. You didn't want to expose yourself to yourself. But the thing is, you know. You always know. You know that you suck with, no with knowing that you like a guy after you go on a date, so you succumb to the fear and push every good guy that comes away within two feet of you. You know that you don't want to tell your girlfriend that she's suffocating you, so you say nothing and become a doormat out of the fear that she'll leave your ass. You don't want to tell your parents that you would prefer not to become an orthodontist, so you bury yourself in student loan debt and bullshit knowledge about braces in order to avoid the disappointment. Yet you refuse to acknowledge it. You don't want that boy to potentially crush your soul. You don't want that girl to potentially make you feel abandoned and akin to a worthless loser. You don't want to tell your parents that you would prefer to shun a, quote, good job in favor of something you could see yourself doing and ascending in. This is mindless positivity. This is denial. This is the dog in the burning room meme. This is the modern equivalent of self-esteem. Simply looking at a problem and observing it doesn't solve a single fucking thing. You don't do anything. You succumb to slacktivism. You put a fresh coat of paint on without a primer and hope it doesn't peel off as soon as something rubs against it. 
You aren't active enough to solve the problem, so you get lazy and simply repeat that everything is going to be all right in an attempt to wish the problem away. Probably in a mirror if you read a lot of Brian Tracy or Jensen Sero. The saddest thing of all, though, is that I believe that most people who find themselves in this feedback loop from hell, shout out Mark Manson, is that they genuinely want their lives to get better. I don't think many people want their lives to suck, but they can't. Their self-esteem won't let them. You will always find yourself in the same state of unhappiness for the simple reason that you refuse to do anything about that same state of unhappiness. Your self-esteem simply tells you to love yourself, that there's nothing wrong with you. So you stay in that purgatory within your own mind, paralyzed by either the option of abject misery or the chance you might get hurt if you try to leave your purgatory. The choice is yours. In fact, let's take this a step further just for shits. I would argue that this brand of self-esteem not only enables unhappiness, but it encourages unhappiness. When you become blinded by your own self-conceit, when you think that everything is okay when it's really not, you lack the sensibility to find what is truly making you unhappy. It's easy to tell yourself that you love who you are. It's hard to tell yourself that you can't stand the way you treat yourself and that you need to get your shit together. It's easy to tell yourself that you're a good father. It's hard to tell yourself that your kids hate you because you push them too hard and are too controlling. It's easy to tell yourself that your husband loves you. It's hard to ask him questions about why he's going on so many business trips lately. These rose-colored glasses are a trap, a lie told by self-esteem, or at least our modern view of it. It removes self-awareness, therefore sending us into a downward spiral of seemingly endless unhappiness in the favor of doing something as stupid as blindly thinking that everything is okay. It could be, sure. But it also could not be. To ignore that fact is not a negative. It's ignorance, and that's a violation of dote number two. With this modern version of self-esteem, with the encouragement of its other definition of self-conceit, we can allow ourselves to continue this spiral until it destroys us. This is how depression happens. This is how suicide happens. This is how addiction happens. We get so stuck into thinking that we are okay and that nothing we do matters that we continue to make it worse for ourselves. We continue to do nothing to obtain greater happiness and fight our rising unhappiness. That's why self-esteem is bullshit. But not completely. There is another side to this equation. There is the good side of it, of what the word intended it to be. But it might not be what you think. Part 2. Kinda. Scott Barry Kaufman is one of the leading scientists of our time. A lifelong psychologist, he currently sits as the scientific director at the Imagination Institute in the Positive Psychology Center at the University of Pennsylvania. In English, he's really into this, quote, the way human mind works thing. Oh, and he has a podcast, too, the Psychology Podcast. I heard it's pretty good. I've never listened to it personally, but I've heard it's pretty good. But... Perhaps his biggest accomplishment, at least in his own mind, lies in his latest book, Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization. Incredibly well-researched and sourced, the book stands head and shoulders above almost everything I've read in some time. Kaufman's main inspiration for his life's work is Abraham Maslow, the revolutionary psychologist who came up with the hierarchy of needs, which organizes the needs of humankind from a base of survival to a height of self-actualization. You've probably seen it in a couple of textbooks before. But according to Kaufman, it's wrong. 
Not necessarily Maslow's research. He actually think a lot, thinks a lot of it still holds up all these years later. But the presentation of it. In Kaufman's eyes, the pyramid is nothing short of atrocious in explaining what Maslow actually, Maslow actually means. He would prefer a sailboat. In the new diagram of the introduction of Transcend, Kaufman explains this new metaphor of a sailboat. And this is on, um, the image is on my blog, by the way. Don't read this blog.com. It's in uh, 2020, September. So I'll get into the diagram in a second and you know we'll kind of, kind of move into that area as we go through forward. So in his new diagram of the introduction, Kaufman explains the new metaphor of a sailboat. The boat itself is made up of what he calls, quote, security needs, with the sail being made up of what he calls, quote, growth needs. Self-actualization is now a part of the hierarchy with something called transcendence being the new peak of human achievement. So in the security needs, he has safety, connection, self-esteem. In the growth needs, he has exploration, love, purpose, and then transcendence is above the sailboat. In order to have growth, you must have security in who you are. And the one need in security that bridges the gap to growth comes in the form of the title of this post, Self-Esteem. I nearly puked all over the beautiful new book when I saw the word pop up. Here we go again, another fucking intellectual telling me I need to feel good all the time. That's basically what I thought. Well, I don't consider Kaufman to be the most manly man out there. I do consider him to be incredibly smart. And when used properly, intellect can provide a pretty convincing argument that sways my opinion. Kaufman does not embody the toxic self-esteem that poisons most of our popular culture. He doesn't run from the problem. He confronts it head-on and addresses the difficulties that it faces and the delusions that permeate its modern meaning. To Kaufman, this comes to a head when we start putting our self-esteem as a priority in front of our other needs of security, such as feeling connection to people and eating enough. Understandably, this is a problem. When we put our own self-esteem at the center of our needs universe, it can easily become something unstable. It's hard to argue that eating and feeling connected to something does the same thing. In his words, quote, Indeed, when self-esteem is too much of a concern relative to other needs, this is an indication that one's self-esteem has become unhealthy, highly insecure, unstable, and highly dependent on the validation of others, end quote. So, what is healthy self-esteem? According to Kaufman, it is based upon other base needs and contains two elements, self-worth and mastery. Self-worth is when you believe you have meaning, and mastery involves your intentionality of affecting the world in a positive way both according to Kaufman in the text. You can read the book if you want to. This provides a stark contrast to the prior section. You're not putting on the rose-colored glasses and shielding yourself in ambiguity. You're giving yourself a, def a, defin a definitive recipe in order to create the first definition of self-esteem and the good kind. This can have many benefits and will lead to another, tra and lead to another transcendence, which we will talk about in the next section. This kind of self-esteem will encourage an internal sense of goodness about yourself. Not many people know how fortunate they are to be where they are. Their arrogance never ceases to amaze me. In order to be alive, you have to survive after being one in a who knows how many chances of getting fertilized by your parents. Then you get born and have to deal with the horrors of life, including things like disability and disease. You had to be in a stable environment surrounding you that enabled you to do things like read and write. You had to have a lot of things go in your favor, more than anyone can count. If that kind of higher power-induced luck doesn't prove that you're worthy, I don't know what can. So many things have to be right for you to be reading this post. You have to have a great amount of things go, go right for you to do so. You have to have some sort of, to take some sort of initiative in order to get to where you want to be in life, in order to take it upon yourself to ascend to the point where you can create an internal sense of self-worth. <laughs> By seeing this, 
You should also see that in the inherent goodness that comes about you should you take that initiative. This is the mastery that Kaufman talked about. It allows you to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You've made it this far, so why not go a little more? Why not help someone, most importantly myself? Why not see what I can bring to the world? By seeing this worth and mastery, it leads you to the next group of, def next group of hierarchical needs that Kaufman talks about. Growth. You can aspire to things like love and purpose due to the belief that you have the inherent right to do so, which you do. Everyone does. It is as natural order of the world wills it to be. And this natural order is the basis for growth. When you have the internal sense of worth simply derived from the fact that you are naturally worthy due to all that you have overcome, the need for external validation becomes extinct. You don't need to tell yourself that you love yourself in a mirror. You don't need to buy shitty self-help books and pay for bullshit seminars online that teach the bad concepts of self-esteem. In realizing this potential for growth, you can also see your future that is sometimes hard to see. We never know what is going to happen to us. I'm sure, I sure as hell don't. It could be good. It could be awful. We don't know for sure. But with that internal sense of growth and worth locked in, you can propel yourself to be something bigger. You can become your personal something bigger. You can make yourself the mission. You are too worthy based on your internal traits not to. With a boundless future that is made possible only by your true sense of self-esteem given by your self-worth and mastery, you will slowly begin to realize that your sensibilities and the possible begin to broaden. What you thought was oppressing you was not oppressing you at all. It was all a mirage, constructed by the hallucinogen that is the toxic self-esteem concept that the world propagates as real. Your eyes become open to what is actually happening, not what you simply perceive to be. Possibilities are simply what you make them, for the most part. Barring a LeBron James, Stephen Hawking type of gift, most of us are just average and ordinary people. We compete with each other, not with the LeBron James and Stephen Hawkings of the world. Our, quote, possibilities are largely in line with one another which should give you the optimal room to break free and create your own niche. You, shouldn't have to live, you don't have to live on anyone else's terms. You become hyperbolically weightless. You aren't bound to anything but the constraints of what you know to be true, should you see your true self-worth and mastery based on you, not based on what, the outside of your, what is outside of your control and context. But even then, I still don't think it's enough. It's too easy to go back to what it was, to what was the original cause of the misinterpretation. Self-esteem is still largely bullshit. There's too much margin for error. There are too many causes that, that can allow us to slip down the slope of self-conceit, the slope that inevitably, inevitably leads to our own destruction. We must break free from this tether and create a new genesis. Because, truly, this type of transcendence can only come from a new place, at least in my opinion. Self-esteem is a corrupted root to the tree of our sense of self. It's time we rid ourselves for it in terms of something better, something that we all know for certain to be true, based on the research of Kaufman, Maslow, and so many others that have studied the field of humanistic psychology and its relatives and the depth and intensity of them. This concept seems similar, but it is much different. However, I suggest that you at least consider adopting it. With this concept, we might have a chance to truly break free and create a new source of our sense of self-validation. You won't have to lie to yourself anymore about being happy and loving yourself. You simply will see yourself naked, flaws and stretch marks and all. You won't have to fool yourself into thinking that something is there when it truly is not, and vice versa. You will be completely attached to something that is worth a shit, not the bullshit of self-esteem. And you will truly, you'll be truly free to ascend to the level that most people cannot reach because of their lack because of self-awareness. You can truly become transcendent.
Part three, self-value. Joe Rogan has had former Green Beret and, quote, the most American man in America, Tim Kennedy, on his podcast numerous times. When Rogan moved to Texas, he had Kennedy, who lives in Austin, on his podcast to discuss a myriad of things. Their conversation lasted for three hours. One of the more interesting dynamics of the conversation was when the conversation turned to the riots that were going on in the world at the time, specifically in places like Portland, which had basically become Pleasure Island. The city had faced over 100 days of rioting and protests with no end in sight. The city had descended into complete and utter anarchy, with almost none of the ruling class doing anything to stop it. This is probably where some of you will get upset at me. They're rioters. They're, mostly, they're not rioters. They're mostly peaceful protesters, some of you will probably say. But here's another thing that's bullshit. The concept of, quote, mostly peaceful. That's about as backwards of a statement as you can force out of your mouth. O.J. Simpson was mostly peaceful the night that he killed his wife. The Manson family was mostly peaceful the night that their followers massacred a pregnant Sharon Tate and her friends, disemboweled her, and wrote, quote, death to all pigs numerous times on her, her, her walls their own blood. The Columbine kids were mostly peaceful on the day of their shooting, as the Boston Marathon bombers and the Sandy Hook shooter. So let's do ourselves a favor and not get into that game. Let's call a spade a spade. But Kennedy and Rogan took a different angle. They looked at the people who had actually been arrested, not the anarchists and opportunists that still roam the street hijacking a movement for their own selfless purposes. The people who had saw a completely different who, who they saw had a completely different look than the quote mostly peaceful protester narrative. They looked horrific. Their eyes were sunken, their skin a shade of pale gray. Their hair was a mess. They had a crazed look in their eye. Not ironically, none of them were black. They didn't dress in nice clothes or at least make an attempt to do so. They probably didn't follow a very balanced diet or work out much. They were miserable, pathetic, and sad people. They had no sense of who they were. Their only identity was chaos and destruction. Kennedy continued with some of the work he does overseas. A career military man, as well as a former UFC fighter and now entrepreneur, Kennedy now travels the world with the military in places like West Africa and the Middle East where he helps to educate and restore stability and security to communities that have been ripped apart by insurgencies and terrorists. He helps establish police forces, teaches people how to defend themselves, and warns them of the danger of the groups they try to prey on, prey on them. Kennedy has seen a ton of shit overseas. It's pretty horrible over there in some places. We're damn lucky to live where we live. According to him, again, not surprisingly, groups like Antifa and ISIS and the dictators in places like Burma and, Burma and Rwanda don't get their recruits from places of established order and security. They prey on the weak, the lost, the broken, and the helpless. Small children and teenagers who don't know any better. People who are starving. People who don't have an internal sense of value and worth about themselves. That's why the two of them pointed out the pictures of those who had been arrested in protests. These people had no sense of value about themselves. They didn't respect themselves, which led to them disrespecting others. They had no sense of self-awareness. They had no idea what they were doing to the community as they were ripping them to shreds. But I think they at least felt good about themselves. Their self-esteem was probably high, and that's what matters, right? Another thing that was popular earlier this year was when a whole, the whole, quote, a broken window can be fixed, but a life cannot be given back thing was going around. This, on its face, is absolutely true. One smashed window and one arm, unarmed black man being murdered by a police officer are not even in the same universe. But the saying itself was not without its deceit and manipulation. There have been reports from various institutions that it will take somewhere between two and five decades for the downtown areas of cities like Minneapolis and Portland to recover. 
In two studies, one by Vanderbilt University and one by Urban Studies, they discussed the economic fallout of the 1960s rioting after the deaths of Martin Luther King Jr. and the Rodney King beating of the early 1990s. There was approximately $1 billion of property damage in the Rodney King riots. The aftermath showed a $4 billion additional loss in long-run economic value to the region. After the 1960s riots, property value in the area declined by a whopping 10% over the next decade, with no rebound hardly shown at all in the 1970s. What has happened to south-central Los Angeles and Harlem since then? Hint, not many good things. The mob and anti-mob manipulate people into thinking that destroying people's lives is okay, that it's, quote, just another window. And the, but the thing is, it's not. These people are not, quote, the system, or, quote, the man. They're everyday folks, one whose entire financial livelihood is tied up in the success of their businesses. That is now completely upended because a bunch of valueless people impose their own despair upon others. Robert Herjavec, one of the sharks on Shark Tank, predicted that we will see the biggest exodus from urban areas in half a century, and that's proving to be at least somewhat true. The cost of living is already ridiculously fucking high in places like Boston, New York City, and San Francisco. Throw that in a blender with the riots, you'll get people leaving cities in droves. LinkedIn ran a study that net immigration into California has fallen by double-digit percentages in the last year. People are leaving in droves. The state's on fire, the taxes are too high, downtown isn't safe, homelessness is running rampant, adults can have sex with 10-year-olds, ruling class affiliates shun you with their virtue at every chance they get, and there are rolling blackouts on a regular basis. Who in the fuck would want to live there? I'm afraid that places like Minneapolis and Portland are heading in that same direction. In the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, Minneapolis almost defunded their police department fully. What business owner would want to open something up in a city that does nothing about potential lawlessness? In these cities, crime is skyrocketing. Property values are declining in rapid numbers. Investment is leaving these cities in favor of places like Nashville and Salt Lake City, two new hotbeds of entrepreneurial activity. Landlords, i.e. slumlords, who used to rule over the drastically inflated property values are grasping at straws to stave their income. As it turns out, charging $4,000 a month in rent isn't a sustainable business model. With no inherent sense of valuing yourself, you become a piece of shit. You become like the arrested people, or Minneapolis or Portland, or Harlem or South Central Los Angeles. You become a doormat for people who do have values, good or bad, to walk all over you. They will prey on you if you don't have that sense of identity within yourself. You will suddenly become a pawn in another person's game, with them free to do whatever the hell they want to you, as long as you shut up and obey. So no, you shouldn't always like yourself but you should always value yourself. It is the only way to avoid the clutches of those nefarious enough to use people as tools to shape their life. The only way you can avoid that fate is if you value yourself. Liking yourself is not enough. Telling yourself that you're fine no matter what you do and what the consequences are is not the answer. Telling yourself that you love yourself in a mirror, even if you're not a good person or doing the right things, isn't either. Only acknowledging your inherent value that you possess can you transcend that low-level gratification for a higher sense of being. Think of all the obstacles you've had to overcome that we named in the last section. Your parents probably had to be mostly non-pieces of shit. You had to at least have one. You had to have at least one somewhat stable income. You had to not come out your mother disabled or come out of your mother disabled or without birth defects. You were born in the most free country with the most rights the world has ever seen. It's not perfect, but it's more than we've ever sniffed. You can afford access to a computer and the internet and a pair of headphones in order to read this post. You have to be able to read in general. 
put those odds in the oven at 350 for about a half an hour, and that's pretty much a miracle. And not only that, you've read this far into this post and listened this far into this podcast. That could say a lot of things. But the thing that I believe outweighs all the others is that you value what you could potentially get from reading this far into this low-traffic internet post or listening to this low-traffic internet podcast. You must be seeking something to better yourself. You must agree that self-esteem, or a modern perception of it, is just a little bit bullshit. You're making an effort. You're trying. And in a world where not a lot of people do so, where many people do it just to boost their, quote, self-esteem, that's saying a whole lot. One more thing for all the people who embody self-value and not the shallow self-esteem. You need to know that if you do indeed value yourself, you will inherently develop confidence and every good trait that comes with it. Developing the skill cannot be done in reverse order. It must follow this chronology. Those without a sense of self-value cannot accomplish anything. They're simply adrift, driftwood in the waves, completely at the mercy of something stronger than them, something beyond their current comprehension. However, when you value yourself, when you choose that because of the sheer luck of the universe you turn out to be as unfucked up as you are, you can discover the abilities of competence. You can pursue mastery, half of the equation of real self-esteem and according to Scott Barry Kaufman. You can become a psychologist or a doctor or a financial consultant or a construction worker or whatever you want to be. You can build upon your inherent value to create more. This is not a thing you should do. This is something that you need to do. The world needs people who don't succumb to the masses. It needs people with actions, ideas, and opinions to shape discourse and to drive the world forward. Simply following mindlessly does nothing but add to the potential of both sides of the mob. It's an obligation. It's a duty. It's a must. Self-value is the only way out of the maw of self-esteem. And it is the shunning of liking and hoping that you're a good person to actually be a good person. It is rejecting the false notion of the rose-colored glasses in favor of seeing clearly and objectively who you are and what you need to get better at. It is letting go of the false notions that our cultural promotes nothing that you promotes that nothing you do matters. It is knowing the consequences of all actions and facing them with a sense of fortitude, because they all matter. When self-esteem takes precedence over self-value, the notion of feeling good becomes more important than doing good. The fast-feeling brain hijacks the slow-thinking brain and insinuates chaos and or disorder into every factor of your being. When self-value is imposed, you allow yourself to be checked, to not know what you don't know, and see if there's anything that can be done to make you and everyone else better. If scarcity is what defines value, I'd say that's headed in the right direction. In our culture that's so obsessed with mindless positivity and valuelessness, a rejection of self-esteem will do you much good. By choosing self-value over self-esteem, you'll be choosing being and doing over hoping and wishing. You'll be proactive instead of reactive. You'll be able to become the person you know you can become. From Kaufman to Kennedy, this opinion can wage across the spectrum of belief and thought. It can cascade throughout any ideology or way of thinking. It must, if we are to truly have a truly intellectually diverse society, you can speak freely and disagree openly without killing each other. Self-conceit is a road showered with flowers and unicorns that leads to hell. It can only lead to a slippery slope if we use it incorrectly. Should we use it correctly, in the form of self-value, however, it can be a true tool for transcendence. It can allow us to be something greater. It can allow us to ascend properly without the necessarily evils and tribulations that come with self-esteem and the self-conceit that mirrors it. It allows us to mount a proper defense against both sides of the mob and horror that comes with both, both of them. 
to strive towards our own path and redirect and refocus anything that detracts from it. My advice to you would be to take this path. It is less traveled, but much more fruitful. And they call that, as well, a paradox. That's it for me, folks. I'll let you go. Have a great 4th of July. Remember why we celebrate the 4th of July, please. And again, own the day. Open your mind. Have a good one. Have a great 4th of July. I'll see you guys next week. Thank you very much. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?